Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel. I'm your host, Dallas. I'm Alexis. And I'm Big Anne. I'm tall big. and I'm embracing it. And yeah, it's a good thing. Just a big old Anne. And, <laughs> and today we are joined again by good friend of the pod, WrestleMania Maniac, Owen from the YouTube channel, Owen Likes Comics. Hello, Owen. How are you doing? Hello. There's a lot to process from that introduction, both in terms of my <laughs> description and the description of other people on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to roll with it. This sounds great. Yeah, I, I have concerns too. Do we vote on this friend of the podcast thing? Like, is this the communal thing? Oh, or are you just speaking for yourself, Dallas? I, need to, I need to know. Ooh, so that's man. the part Jeez. we're taking umbrage with. Okay, I see how it is. Jeez. All right. Yeah, Big Ann comes out with big swings right out of the gate. continue continue roll keep rolling all right yeah yeah yeah. so we brought owen back i want to know again before matt draper like we usually swap off like owen matt owen matt it it really does speak for itself but you don't need to explain why yeah it's it really has to be in every other thing and then this time owen came back first because i mean like what what were you gonna ask matt to do does john carpenter write comics does godzilla write comics i don't think so Listen, I did try to talk with Matt about something, and all he would agree to was reading Spawn. He just wanted to read Spawn on the podcast, and I was like, Matt, Matt, I'm not going to read Spawn on the podcast. If there's one thing thing we know about uh, Matt Draper, it's his deep, undying love of Spawn. I mean, Matt loves Spawn is his Twitter handle, so. (laughs) Yeah, go follow him on Twitter (laughs) at Matt Loves Spawn. Yeah. Spawny Matt. 69 i would i would read the neil gaiman issue and then i'd stop i'd <laughs> be like my homework assignment is done for the week some would say that's Morrison even too much spawn. <laughs> i remember reading spawn was the first time i realized comics could be bad because like i was really in this little golden era reading comics i'd read it pretty quick it was within my first six months of comics I was like, gosh, comics rule. All of these are good. I was reading bad comics. I was just so enamored with them that I was like, everything is awesome and perfect and wonderful. Wow. <laughs> and then I read Spawn and I went, that was less that way. Huh. Hmm. There are too many words on these pages and none of them are good. Too many words and too many chains. I mean, never enough chains, but uh, we can do words. more chains. Mm-hmm. Chains hang to his dangalang, frankly. <clears throat> Although that count is really cool. I hope they keep up with it. I remember learning that that didn't go anywhere. And that was what really took it out of me. Like, because I was like, oh man, this counter, it's it's cruising for a bruising. I'm on issue 10 here and he's used half of his counter. Goodness. This is going to be a really interesting book when he loses his powers. And uh, now we're on what, issue 750? And they've really made that last 50% stretch. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Hey, Lexi, just play Mortal Kombat 11. That's all the spawn you need. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but this is not a spawn timber podcast. This is oh, not sponsored by Todd McFarlane. We are allowed to have women on the podcast. And so <gasps> we are talking today about modern masterpiece from DC Comics, Tom King, Mitch Garrods. Is it Clayton Coles on... Um, letters. I don't remember. 
Yep. Uh, look at that. Clayton Cowles on <clears throat> letters. Nick yeah. Darrington does the covers, which are great. Mr. Miracle, the 12 issue maxi series from DC Comics, the comic that got me back into comics, the comic that I have not read since 2019. And I got to rekindle my love for one of my favorite comics of all time this week. I'm very excited to chat with all of you about it. So without further ado, I want to do some general impressions of Mr. Miracle. And then we're going to let Owen do what Owen does best and talk to you about the history of Mr. Miracle, the context in which it exists, and make you fall in love with the people behind these comics. Because that is half the fun. So, Anne, I want you to go first, and then I'll go first, and then Alexis goes, and then Owen, you, and then you can take us away. that sound okay? He's Perfect. putting me last because I said I didn't like it. Thank you. I'm kicking you off the podcast because you <laughs> yeah, said you didn't you, like it. You, you keep the interesting I'm perspective. I'm sorry! <laughs> we, we got it. Okay, both sides. Um, I'm going to actually go out and say that when I read this for the first time, I don't think I liked it very much either. But I think it's because I was just very confused on what it was supposed to be. I picked it up. Um, and it's like, I love the fourth world. I love these characters. I love Darkseid. I was big into my cape shit back then. I think I read it for the first time late 2018. Late 2018, early 2019. I took the book with me on vacation to Maine. I remember because I actually got water damaged in my suitcase. <laughs> we camped in a swamp. I don't know why they told us it was fine. Anyways, um, I read the whole thing and I'm like, you know, it's really pretty. I kind of like, I was getting into Tom King for like the first time around then. I'm like, I really like like how he sets up mo motifs. I like the themes that are going on. At least I think I do, but I have a very, I had a very hard time grasping what the narrative was supposed to be, what the, the plot was supposed to be. I think I, did that because I was trying to read it just as a straightforward superhero comic. And I'm like, I need to know where this fits in. I need to find its place. I need to find its canonical meaning because, you know, I was reading superhero comics like that back then. And then I had to actually do some digging on it. I looked up like, um, I looked up some videos on YouTube. I did some digging around on different forums and I'm like, okay, I think I understand more what it's about now, but it still kind of confuses me. And I'm, I'm still just kind of out there. So I hadn't read it again until just now. And I went through the whole thing in about an hour and a half sitting last night. And I was like, oh, shit, I think I think I get it. I There's still a lot of parts where I'm still I still have question marks. But I'm at the point now where it's like I'm excited to fill those in instead of just kind of like dreading to fill them in because I'm like, yeah, I'm. I'm actually really, really interested to hear what everyone has to say about this book. I have a couple questions I wrote down that I'm like, I'm still not sure if I know the answer to these or not. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not gonna, I think this is a comic book that when Alexis told me that she wasn't clicking with it initially, usually when she says something, I'm like, oh no. But this time I was like, no, nah, I can convince you. Like, I this book is so good. And I love this book so much that you'll leave like, that was really good. Like, I can gaslight you right into loving this book with me. Because it, <laughs> it, everything's subjective except for this one. We will make you like it. It's just a comic book that means a lot to me. And it's a testament to me of going back and rereading 
books that you love because I've had conversations with people that don't understand why I like to reread books or why I like to keep them on my shelves. It's like, oh, well, once you've read it, you have the story. It's not going to change. It's always going to be the same story. And Mr. Miracle to me is such a testament to the fact that I am the one that changes and therefore my experience with the book changes. When I first read this, I was in my first year of college and I was dating around. I was making good friends and I was feeling, I don't know, there's like a loneliness that comes with the first little stint of college, right? Where you're like, oh man, I'm all out on my own now and no one is really like, I remember it's a dark thought in hindsight, but I, I promise it didn't like spiral me in the way it probably should have. But I was like, if I like disappeared, like it'd be a minute before anyone knew, like, cause I like live far away. True. You are no. so loud. Somebody would notice <laughs> of Big our word. family. <laughs> Big word. But like, I just remember this feeling where I was like, my roommates, they care about me, but not in the same way that like family cares about me. Like, if I don't come home, they're like, oh, what, whatever, he's doing something. Like, it would take a minute for anyone to notice. And that that felt lonely. That felt scary. And I feel like reading Mr. Miracle at that point to me felt very much like what sort of the darkness of life can feel like. And I, don't, like, I feel like it really wrote to my experience as a man like i was like scott free is not this big macho man that i read a lot of in comics but he's a man that reminds me of myself like i feel like i'm like scott free and therefore i really like this comic book and reading it this time i now am much more secure in my life i I'm married to a woman that I am head over heels for. And I very much read like, oh man, this is a book about how hard adult life can be, which it is, but how sweet the people in our life that we love are and how that's what makes a hard life okay. Like no matter what is going on around us, if we give love and have love in whatever shape it may be, that darkness is okay and won't win and that was just a completely different message than i got the first time through and it was really really fun for me i'm excited to talk about the craft of this comic book i think these are two of the very best people making comics right now making comics together and it's just such a love letter to comic booking storytelling life love and I think the meaning of life is tucked away in Mr. Miracle. And I can't say that about everything that we've read on this show. So that is why I love Mr. Miracle. Alexis, take it away. He intentionally put me after that to make me gaslight into wanting to like this book. But for me, I I have to give a little context. I absolutely had no idea who Mr. Miracle was until yesterday at all. Never heard of his name, never seen his face, never knew anything about him. And Dallas did have me read like a little um, introductory to his story, kind of like get me familiar with what he is basically. So I have that, but I feel like for me, the disconnect was like, I really don't have any idea who this guy is. Like, I feel like if I would have had a little bit more, I don't know. I don't know because I feel like, 
I, I see both sides. Like, yes, I had no idea who he was, but the run was still fun. But I felt disconnected through the whole time because um, I was like, oh, well, I'm not really attached to this character. And then, oh, well, now they're – I just feel like – how do I want to word this? Because I want to like it. It just was really hard for me to get into it. I liked the last couple of issues when things started to kind of turn around, but those first few ones were really hard for me to get through. Like, I just feel like I couldn't really step into the story very well. I felt disconnected from it. Um, and I just feel like I kind of didn't understand, like, the humor that was going through it, like, all the different... I mean, I saw the underlying tones of of course, like depression in his life and the experiences that him and his wife went through. But I just feel like for me, I was like, oh, oh, okay. Like, okay, I guess that's a thing. I don't really know why, but all right, you know. So I feel like this is one that I probably will have to revisit or get more information about Mr. Miracle to feel like super into this book. It was fun. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. I do think this book is better on reread because I remember yeah. after my first read, I was in exactly the same spot as you where mm-hmm. I read it and I went, that was okay. pretty good. That was pretty good. But like, yeah, like I get it. It's fun. Yeah. Like I liked that. Okay. And then actually, if you scroll all the way to the bottom of this, dear listener, I almost never do this because the audio on those are terrible. But the very first episode of this podcast is me, my friend, Rachel and my friend T talking about Mr. Miracle. And it was that reread that made me love this comic. And my friend Rachel's conversation about her mental health, specifically like BPD, and how Scott Free felt so real and tangible to her that she's like, I have never seen myself on a page like I do with Scott Free. And yeah, this book, I don't know. I There aren't many books that I tell people to like, read it again but like i am confident like mr miracle read it again read it again like there is something here that i think speaks to our time and speaks to our human experience in this specific moment but we'll talk more about it over the show (laughs) what what made it turn around in the back half of those issues for you like what made you like it more I liked seeing the shift after they had their first son. I liked seeing like how they kind of combated their own trauma with putting their full force of love and joy into their child and wanting what's best for him because they didn't have that growing up. And so I kind of felt like for me, I was able to see like our parents. I was like, oh, yeah, our parents grew up with not the same experiences that we had. So they did their damnedest to make sure that we were able to have those options. So I, I liked that part of it after, cause I felt like I could see myself in it. So. Well, do you think that that could be the thesis of the book that if you give yourself anchor points to a reality you love, then life gets better. But like he is kind of the first half of the book. Scott is kind of floating. Scott is disconnected and it's only when he makes tangible decisions to be present to be with his to create a life worth not escaping that his life turns around i would say so yeah look at that book is good all right owen talk to me about or 
talk to me. And then also everyone else that's listening, but mostly me, about why you love Mr. Miracle. This book's a bag of shit. Stop. This is one of the worst comics I have ever read. It's like, I was just waiting. Like, it's meant to be a superhero book. He doesn't, like, punch a single bad guy in this whole thing. Like, Tom King just likes to make comics about miserable people doing miserable things. He doesn't understand what superheroes are about. I don't want to see character studies. I don't want to see in-depth analysis of overcoming trauma and learning to live with depression and PTSD or a meta-commentary about arguably the most important and greatest person to ever work in the comics industry like batman for example why wasn't this more like a batman comic where he just punches bad guys doesn't unpack his trauma and we just move on exactly. for real though, i, I think know this one is... thing about batman it's that there's no depth to those stories okay all, all jokes aside i i've been on record saying i think this is one of the greatest comic books produced in this century and i would maybe go further and call it one of my favorite comic books of all time um, I definitely agree with what Lexi's saying. Like, I came into reading this in, in 2019 with a very good knowledge of the kind of context and subject matter of it. So immediately I was able to pick up on so many kind of tiny details and play in the sandbox that King is kind of playing in. But if this was my first introduction to Mr. Miracle, I would be absolutely clueless and lost because it is like more so than the story itself, this is a, a meta narrative and a book about something completely other than what the book's about, if that makes sense. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but just looking at the actual comic itself, um, I think this is incredible. I think that it's still to this day, maybe the best thing Tom King has written, which is high praise for me because I, I think Tom's one of the best writers working in comics today and is continuing to put out awesome book after awesome book. I've never really disliked anything he's written. And yet I think this stands kind of atop everything else he's done as not only maybe his best writing, but also like the best encapsulation of all of the themes and ideas and the, the kind of characters and stories he likes to tell in comics kind of encapsulate better than anything. I think Mitch Gerrards as an artist, this is like, I'd seen Mitch's work before in other bits, like he did some uh, some stuff on Batman. He did some kind, of, obviously he did Sheriff of Babylon with King as well. So I was like familiar with Mitch as an artist, but I'd never really experienced uh, like a full on Mitch Gerrard's book until I'd read this. And as much as like it's brilliantly written by King, there's so many aspects of this book which are dominated by the art, you know, pages that glitch out. And then you've got like the the hard cuts between panels to dark side is and the way they use like the geography of the page specifically in the issue where they go to visit dark side where they frame the actual individual panels of the book like bars in a jail cell like the art and the coloring and the lettering of this book is absolutely sublime it's incredible and then on top of that king tells an awesome story about so many different things and, and i absolutely just i love this book so much it's it's one of my favorites i made a whole last documentary about it uh, so much so and it and that documentary was so good mitch jared's cried over it i have that on record tom didn't he called me a nerd but that's kind of what he does every day inside of you there are two wolves <laughs> one i like to i like to think nerds. i like to think he called me that while holding back tears but i don't have that on record um, so if you want, I can dive into a little bit of the historical context of Mr. Miracle, explain kind of what Tom King is actually trying to get at in this book and what about it I find like so awesome and interesting. Yes, please. So 
I come from a very historical background, uh, both in terms just professionally and also kind of in the way I read and approach comics. Um, I'm a big lover of comics history and lore and the kind of outside of the page context and the stories of the people that create these characters and how their real world experiences kind of infuse the kind of stories they tell. And so when it comes to that and that idea of a meta narrative, something that's about something in the real world beyond just kind of the, the plot of the book itself. I don't think you'll find a better example of it than the Mr. Miracle. So Mr. Miracle was a character created in 1971 by Jack Kirby. Um, Kirby, as I'm sure everyone listening to this knows, was uh, kind of the main artist and like one half of the big driving force of Marvel Comics in the 60s, kind of really spearheads that Marvel renaissance alongside Stan Lee creates the the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, the Avengers, the the list goes on and on and on of all the characters that Kirby helped create. And it was his art that really kind of brought the look and style of the Marvel Universe to life in his vision. And in a lot of instances, he was kind of one of the real driving forces of the stories they would tell um, in addition to that. And in the late 1960s, essentially, to condense a a very complicated story into a, a short sentence... Kirby kind of began to grow frustrated with the situation that he was facing at Marvel. He felt that he was doing uh, more and more of the kind of the plotting and coming up with the storylines of the books and wasn't being credited as the writer. And he felt that his work was kind of being overshadowed by Stan Lee, who was both the the kind of lead writer and also the editor-in-chief of the company at this time. And there grew to be a little bit of tension and animosity between the two of them. This kind of uh, boils over in 1967 when... um, So Lee and Kirby were working on a story together in the Fantastic Four, which would see the first arrival of Galactus, this new massive villain, big dude in a chair who eats planets. You got to love him. And when kind of taking Lee's notes and kind of putting it to life, Kirby creates a brand new character completely independently called the Silver Surfer, who now is like, you can't really think of Galactus without the Silver Surfer. And that was a completely original Kirby idea. Lee hadn't mentioned anything about this other character in his notes it was just something that kirby came up with and ran with and it became a massive part of of that arc of fantastic four and a massive part of the marvel universe now those comics come out and the silver surfer is massively popular becomes a huge success readers just love this kind of like alien sci-fi this they just want more of this character and so lee decides as editor-in-chief they're going to launch a silver surfer solo book Now, you would expect that Jack Kirby would be involved in that either as just the artist or maybe also writer and artist. What happens is Lee appoints himself as writing the book, and if memory serves me right, it's John Basima that draws it. So Kirby's kind of completely cut out of writing the title of a character he completely 100% created on his own. And that incident, along with some other things, is essentially what drives Kirby to quit Marvel and instead go over to work at DC in 1970. Now, when Kirby goes to DC, he basically just wants the opportunity to not be in anyone else's shadow. He kind of believes that his kind of creative genius and his ability to tell stories and the kind of stories he wants to tell have been either stifled or kind of uh, diluted by the people he's had to collaborate and work with. And he wants the opportunity to not only kind of showcase how great of an artist he is, but also that he's a competent writer in himself and he has all of the kind of ideas and the abilities to tell stories that are normal everyday writer would. So he goes over to DC and he pitches a a series of books collectively known as The Fourth World, which are this kind of like vast Shakespearean space opera, think Star Wars before Star Wars, 
um, that would comprise of three books, one being The New Gods, one being The Forever People, and the third being Mr. Miracle, that would all kind of interconnect and share this collective ongoing saga of the fourth world, which is all about these two warring planets, New Genesis and Apocalypse, Darkseid being this big uh, like embodiment of ultimate evil in the universe, trying to conquer New Genesis and obtain the anti-life equation, and Mr. Miracle, who both features in The New Gods and in his own solo comic, is the kind of adopted son of Darkseid, who um, is part of a peace offering. Highfather's son and, and Darkseid's son basically swap worlds and swap families. So Mr. Miracle is raised on Apocalypse by Darkseid. And then the premise of Kirby's original Mr. Miracle comic is he escapes, he comes to Earth, he begins working as like a TV escape artist, and he, him and Big Barda fall in love, and they become superheroes. They eventually join the Justice League, and so on and so forth. And for Kirby, Mr. Miracle was like a massive self-insert character for him. Other than maybe like Ben Grimm, the thing, I don't think there's any character that really encapsulates Kirby as much as uh, Scott Free does. Mark Evania, who was Kirby's assistant at this time and would go on to write Kirby's official biography, uh, Kirby King Comics, described... Um, described the character Mr. Miracle as being inspired by Jack's own feelings of confinement in his own career and his eternal grasping of some way to break free. So in the same way that Mr. Miracle breaks out of this hellscape that is apocalypse, comes to earth and has this fresh start at life and can show his amazing abilities and skills to a whole new audience, Mr. Miracle represented Kirby's ability to kind of escape the shadow of Stan Lee and his other collaborators, make it in a new company and could tell completely original stories with brand new characters that were wholly 100% his. Now, the tragic part of that comes in what happens to the New Gods and Mr. Miracle and the whole Fourth World Saga, which is that they were very convoluted storytelling. Kirby, while being like a creative visionary and being someone with a such an eye for kind of bombastic, large-in-life storytelling, wasn't the best at writing dialogue. I think that's kind of a fair thing to say. His books were very kind of hard to read and hard to grasp, especially in like the early 1970s. They're very, very ahead of the time and audiences really struggled to engage with and connect with the fourth world books. And eventually, um, after only like 10, 12 issues each, all of these books were cancelled um, without... And they weren't meant to be like long-running books that would go on forever. Kirby had like a definitive end point in mind for the entire fourth world saga which was never realized. Kirby would bounce off some other uh, kind of less popular, obscure DC comics for the rest of his contract. And then he would eventually leave DC in 1975 and go back to Marvel. When Kirby, um, after the cancellation of these books, Kirby was heartbroken. He was distraught. This was like his ultimate opportunity to show his creative vision unfiltered. And DC kind of, once again, the kind of rug sweeped from under him and it's, it's taken away. This opportunity to break free is denied. There's a story that Evania talks about in the biography that uh, other writers at DC who kind of like weren't happy that Jack was coming in, you know, this was the guy that was trying to put them out of business at Marvel, was now having kind of the red carpet rolled out at DC. So he already had a lot of enemies in the DC office. And apparently after the cancellation of these books, people in the DC office started referring to him as Jack the Hack, that he couldn't, that whatever kind of creative force he had at Marvel, clearly he wasn't the the kind of the driver of, and that he was just kind of this washed up old man that couldn't cut it in the modern age of comics at DC. So it's a really sad story. And Kirby would go back to Marvel. He'd work on Captain America. He'd create the Eternals, uh, but he'd never really reached the kind of height of the industry that he had 
previously. He'd never get the same opportunity to kind of flex his creative muscles and come up with something wholly original. And even when he creates the Eternals, which is kind of his spiritual successor to the new gods, that's another book that's kind of cancelled early and doesn't quite have the same connection with the audiences that it, it hoped to have. And so to kind of run down the timeline a little bit, it's it's the mid-1980s. Um, Kirby is pretty much retired from mainstream comics now. He's doing a kind of a couple of like small independent stuff, but he's mostly kind of out of the limelight. And he's at, uh, I believe it's LA Comic Con. Let me just get my notes to double check. Uh, he's a, he's a, I believe it's, it's one of the, it's a 1980s comic convention. I don't want to kind of say something specific and be wrong. And he's got his kind of booth and he's he's talking to fans and he's doing autographs and such. And uh, a young kind of aspiring comics artist called James Romberger approaches him and basically is like, Jack Kirby, you are like the greatest comic artist of all time. You've created so many incredible characters. You are like the godfather of the Marvel Universe. What advice would you give to me, someone wanting to kind of make it in the industry? What What would you tell me to do? in order to kind of uh, follow your footsteps, essentially, and do what you did for a whole new generation. And it's it's well-documented, Kirby's response, but I will read it in full, where he says, uh, Kid, you're one of the best, but put your work in galleries. Don't do galleries. Comics will break your heart. And I remember reading Mr. Miracle for the first time, and Midway through the book were the, the kind of going on that day trip to Los Angeles and the walking down the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Um, when I'd read this book, actually, I'd only just maybe a year or so come back from visiting LA for the first time myself and walking down those exact same steps. There's a bit in the book where they're kind of like Scott's at this moment where he realizes that he might not have long left to live, that shit is hitting the proverbial fan. And him and Barda are walking through uh, the Walk of Fame and they stop at Jack Kirby's star. And Scott puts his hands in in Jack's handprint. And the quote attached to Kirby's star is that quote that he told that young aspiring artist that comics will break your heart. The Not only is this, a, and the whole thing of him putting the hands in his creator is like a big kind of metatextual thing. And obviously like this book deals with the idea of like um, the father figure quite heavily, both in terms of like his relationship with High Father, his relationship with Darkseid his relationship with his agent uh, and other characters. But I found that moment really powerful, especially when you realize that in our world, in the first world, Jack Kirby doesn't have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He doesn't have his handprints there. Stan Lee does, but Jack Kirby doesn't. He's kind of outside of like comic circles and, and people that have kind of followed the history of the industry. Kirby is in the mainstream sense, kind of a forgotten figure that outside of those who kind of follow his characters and really have a love of not only the stories he told, but the the real kind of man behind it in a broad mainstream sense, he isn't particularly well known, not in the same way that someone like a Stan Lee is. Um, and so I found that very powerful for me as someone that is interested in comics history, especially someone that has like a deep emotional connection with Jack Kirby. He's an artist and a, a writer and someone whose story I've always kind of found myself gravitating to and, and found him a really interesting character. Um, that moment where uh, you see his kind of place in the Hollywood Walk of Fame just hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, 
So just to explain a little bit about how this book comes together, now we kind of understand the story of Jack Kirby and the kind of what Mr. Miracle represents in his life as this kind of like ultimate encapsulation of his desire to break free of the typecasting and, and being in the shadow of other creators and how that ultimate kind of opportunity for a creative spark in Mr. Miracle was snatched away from him and he was never given that opportunity again to the point where kind of one of the last like major public um, sightings of him and one of the last major like media appearances is him explaining that comics are only going to break your heart. Um, Tom King is a writer that likes to tell very sad stories about very sad people. And I mean that in the most positive way possible. Um, so this book um, was first conceived around kind of 2017, 2018. At the time, King had just finished. Um, the Omega Man had just become a Times bestselling uh book he just done the vision for marvel which was incredibly well received and really kind of put him on the map in a mainstream sense and he'd just been announced as taking over from scott snyder as the new writer of batman so everything was really on the up for king i remember this was around the time i kind of first started to pay notice to tom king and he was really kind of being seen as a, as a massive rising star in comics and he's talked to himself about how this was meant to be like one of the happiest times of his life and yet um as all this was going on around the same time, he was announced as taking over Batman. Vision had just come out and was being met with so much acclaim. It was being nominated for Eisner's. Um, he suffers a severe panic attack and he goes to hospital uh, thinking that he's having a heart attack and dying. And um, while he's at the hospital, he receives a phone call from his father, who he was estranged with at this time, um, where he's informed that his grandmother had passed away. Um, I don't want to tell like the story of King's life too much because he's talked about it in a lot of podcasts and interviews, but him and his grandmother are extremely close. She played a, like, a massive part in raising him. And so that kind of one-two punch of him realizing that he suffers with anxiety and having like really severe panic attacks, then getting a phone call from his father, who he has a very kind of difficult relationship with at the time, to then find out that the, his kind of maternal figure who really helped raise him had passed away. All of that had a massive impact on him mentally and kind of spiritually as well. And he's talked about in interviews how the basic premise of Mr. Miracle is born out of that cavalcade of emotions, those highs and lows of my books being nominated for Eisner's, I'm going to be writing Batman, but also it kind of, as outwardly it's all on the up, inwardly it felt like it was all coming crashing down for him. And what's interesting, what's interesting about Mr. Miracle is so Mitch Gerrards, the artist of this book, is a longtime friend of King's. They'd worked together on a book, Sheriff of Babylon, quite early in King's career. And they were really looking for an opportunity to work together again. Initially, when King proposed the arc in his Batman run, uh, The War of Jokes and Riddles, that was initially devised to be a book that King and Gerrards would write together. Uh, sorry, that Gerrards would draw and King would write Eventually, DC kind of changed plans. Instead of it being a standalone book, it was incorporated into the main Batman series and Mikhail Janin drawn it very beautifully, uh, I might add. But it meant that King and Jared's were kind of searching for an opportunity to do another separate book together. And King eventually, uh, maybe a year or so later, goes for a meal with Dan DiDio, who's the head of DC Comics at this time. And DiDio basically offers them the opportunity to do a 12-issue Mr. Miracle run. And what's interesting about that is, um, according to King in the interviews that I've listened to, Jared's was the one that had been pushing DC for years to have the opportunity to draw Mr. Miracle. 
more so than King. It was something that Mitch really wanted to do. It's a character that Mitch had like this massive love of. And as soon as the opportunity was presented to King, he knew that he could bring Gerard's on to draw it and they could kind of do it together. So King uh, accepts it. He goes and brings Mitch Gerard's in and they craft this series. And it's very much based out of King's ongoing struggles with mental health. You know, the the sudden kind of return of his estranged father and the loss of his of his grandmother, and as well as kind of the anxiety and, and the panic attacks that he was going through. And King's talked about how he found a lot of solace for that in kind of once the book was, uh, was greenlit and he was hired to do it, going back and reading the original Jack Kirby comics and really familiarizing himself with the story of Kirby, the kind of things I talked about earlier, and really seeing a lot of himself in Jack as well. And so he says that um, he wanted to kind of channel the spirit of Kirby in this series and tell a story that's ultimately above, while it's about a ton of things, is all about kind of finding out who you are and crafting out a small kind of chunk of life that feels like home, even when the rest of the world is kind of falling down around you. If you can just find a small kind of crumb of happiness or just like a slither of enjoyment and pleasure and escape from all of the pain and hardship that kind of makes all of that suffering worthwhile in a sense. And so it's, it's a book that for me, I think comments on and pays tribute to Kirby's legacy in such a beautiful way. There's so many aspects. I I could go on for a full hour, just about all the things in this series that are homages and tributes and parodies in some sense of Kirby and other people in kind of the Kirby circle. But it's a book that kind of parallels and makes fantastic the everyday need to survive, I think is the best way to, to explain this book. Um, and I, I just think it's it's beautiful and awesome, both as like such a loving and knowledge tribute to maybe the biggest unsung hero in comics history. It's also a, a wonderful, beautiful story about how love and family, whether that be kind of natural family or found family, can kind of help pull you out of the darkest moments. And it's also a book about kind of finding your own identity, not choosing to be defined by the places you're from or the people that raise you, being able to kind of carve out a new sense of self built around the people that kind of came along the way, more so the people than you were kind of brought into the earth with. So that's a a long short of it, I would say. That was so awesome. That, I feel a little bit selfish because I was like, I want my friend Owen to tell me all about this. And I just got to sit front row and just watch it happen. Like, if you've ever watched one of Owen's YouTube videos, you'll watch it and you're like, wow, this guy's a genius. I wonder how they pull this off. And I just got to watch one take, Owen be like, and let me very deftly weave you through how this book came to be with no stuttering, no going back. That was really impressive. Another you, thing I, I just awesome. want to add really briefly is that when Kirby first devised the idea of Mr. Miracle and the Mr. Miracle series, his pitch was essentially to make it a superhero soap opera, uh, both in kind of tone and in storytelling styles. and but But like an epic Shakespearean intergalactic soap opera, if that makes sense. And so basically... One of the things I find interesting about what King does, and he's talks about this in, in several interviews and, and stuff, that he wanted to kind of make Kirby's legacy feel like that. In the same way that Kirby wanted to make the story of Scott Free feel like that, he wanted to make the story of Jack Kirby told through the perspective of Mr. Miracle, 
feel kind of incredibly epic, but also incredibly personal. I like that. So I want to turn back over to Anne and Lexi. Let's talk about the soap opera of this book. Let's talk about the relationship of Scott and Barda, the sort of the humdrum everyday life magic of this comic book. Because that for me is where this really comes alive. And I'm wondering if that's the case for you as well. I'm, I mean, yeah, exactly. It's, it's interesting. This is probably the most out of superhero books I've read in the last, I don't know, five years. This one probably has the most duality out of all of them that I've seen. And this is the one where it's like, he doesn't have that, that secret identity. He doesn't have that double life. Yeah, he does. I love seeing just it jumping from him and his wife and his child to him fighting an ongoing everlasting war with the literal devil in space. And it's just, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right words. It's, it's, it feels jarring the first time through. And there's a lot in this comic that's meant to feel jarring from the random insertions of dark side is to all the, um, the random panels of distortion. It's supposed to make it feel a little jarring. It's supposed to make it feel a little unnerving. And yet when we jump back to those moments where Scott and Barter are just living their lives and it feels so normal and their conversations are so, so normal and so ordinary, but you're like in the back of your mind, there is a war going on. There is a war happening and it does such a great job at using that to convey the stress that a lot of people who deal with anxiety are feeling every day. A lot of people who are dealing with um, just the weight and pressure of life every day. I was, I was, when you were talking about how, where you were when you first read it, Dallas, I realized the last time I read this book was before I had even realized that I was transgender and before I'd even started my, started my transition and going back and rereading it and having gone through that, the long process that is still always ongoing and just how much stress and anxiety I felt in my life where it's like, okay, you're not just like, you're not just like cruising by anymore. You are part of this group now that is constantly under attack from a insane culture war. And it's just like the weight that that puts on you, like it's going to sound ridiculous to, to see, but this book is basically like my, my Twitter timeline <laughs> where it's like, I'll be reading through it and there'll be posts about comics and things that I love. And I'm just having conversations with my friends. And then I scroll down just one more post and it's like, oh, by the way, Florida just introduced a new law that would make it illegal for you to get life-saving drugs until you're 26 years old. And you just scroll and then there's more comics, more comics, and then another attack on on trans people. And then scrolling, 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 and then there's like gun violence and then scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And it's just, it just interrupts. It just jumps into your life at the most irregular and unexpected parts. And that hit me a lot harder because... Yeah, I'm just I'm just a person trying to live an ordinary life and I keep feeling like every 5 seconds I have to be reminded that that ordinary life could stop and that there are people actively trying to make that ordinary life stop and it's like it's a fight just to exist and that's and I was that's a very different place to approach this book from than when I was reading it the first time and I didn't have those stress those stressors that pressure on my life and it hit so so differently because those moments of normal that I have the moments of me with my friends my loved ones my family those 
feel like the most important thing to me. And they they lessen everything else, but it doesn't mean that that goes away. That that balance was something that I don't know if I've seen really in any other book. And it, it's crazy. I, I think one of my favorite scenes is when they're literally going through, um, fighting their way through the, the halls of um, New Genesis, talking about renovating their, their um, condo. Yes. <laughs> and they're just, it's, it was an amazing, amazing scene where it's like, sometimes you just have to multitask. You have to juggle. You have to get through all of these hard parts while maintaining the things that matter. And at the end of the book, when I finally got through the message of like, yeah, it's hard, but it's worth it. I, the, my favorite line in the whole book, dark side is, but we are too. That is, I think that's the moment where I'm like, this book finally, finally clicked with me in a way that it didn't four years ago. And those, those normal scenes hit a lot, a lot harder now. Yeah. So Lex, I want to ask you as someone who on the podcast, you've let everybody know that you are in a relationship. You love your Carson a lot. I want to ask you Scott free and big Bardis relationship, sort of being a rock for each other at different times. How do you, do you feel like this is a strong relationship in comics? Do you feel like it reflects the kinds of relationships you've seen i just love your perspective on barda and scott as a couple and how tom king writes a relationship that has these kind of difficulties in it yeah definitely i mean i feel like i loved their relationship from just this little chunk that i've seen i feel like they have been through so much together and i feel like they know each other to the point where they can always rely on each other i mean especially I mean, later in the in the run, we get the bombshell that Darkseed loves to collect babies for fun. And so he was like, give me your child. And they're like, uh, F you, absolutely not. And so when Scott brings it up later to Barda and she loses her shit, valid. Um, and then like kind of a couple pages later where he's like, I love you. And she goes, I love you too. And I could just feel like the underlying asshole at the end of that and I just feel like it's so it's so real and I feel I I want to say that it's a relationship that I understand like it feels so real to me because they do have that shared trauma they have been through so much together but they recognize each other as their safe space and people who put in to their safe space um and I just feel like that's something that's so important and they pull on each other's strengths and they recognize each other's weaknesses and help guide each other through those. And I feel like as someone who I've, I've been dating my boyfriend for a long, a long time. Like I can say that we've been together for three years and I feel like we have changed so much together and I can confidently say that he has helped me grow and I hope that he can say the same for me which I know for a fact because I taught him how to load a dishwasher. Um, <laughs> but it just it's just so important to see real couples in media, in books, in movies, shows, everything, because there are the ups and the downs and there are the funny moments where you're kicking trash 
and talking about expanding your condo. Like it just is it's just funny stuff that I feel like everybody can find bits and pieces where they see themselves and their relationships that they have or they want to have. I love everything you just said. I think again, this podcast episode is very interesting and cathartic to me because this is the first time that we have revisited a book that I feel like I already said everything I had felt about it well. You know, mm-hmm. like that first Mr. Miracle episode of the podcast, the audio might be bad, but the thoughts are good. <laughs> and now the audio is good, but the thoughts are bad. No, I'm just kidding. And ah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. Never coming back. <laughs> but I just am amazed at how much different my life feels and how much differently I connected with this book. I remember one of my big takeaways. I... Another big realization of college for me was realizing how good of a childhood I had and how like good my parents were. Like I grew up with a lot of unearned teenage angst, just being like, my parents are the worst, man. And then like I met people whose parents were the worst, man. And I realized like, no, my parents are really wonderful. And like I... I didn't have any reason for all that angst. And so I remember at that time, I really felt like Big Barda looking at people around me that are struggling really bad. I mean, like, how can I help them? You know, but I feel like another layer of the onion has come off since then where I am more honest about what's going on in my life and the times that I need help. And so this time through, I I empathized a lot more with Scott and there's sort of that duality of how each of these characters are carrying the same shit because Mm -hmm. I really think a lot of people are carrying around different flavors of the same shit, right? Like somebody, there's, there's this line in wisdom from the mouth of babes in the movie ricky bobby the about uh, talladega nights the ballad of ricky bobby one of the funniest movies of all time by the way they're the grandpa is just like a real piece of shit and one of the little grandsons looks at me he's like somebody didn't love you enough as a child did they <laughs> and it's like played for jokes but like that's at the center of everything right like somebody isn't loving you enough like i don't know if it was a child or if it's right now but like Whatever's going on, like, you need some more love. And I feel like Barda and Scott represent that so well, where Scott is actually pretty vocal about the times that he needs help from Barda, right? But I think the most stirring part of this book for me is are the moments when Barda tells Scott that she needs help from him too, right? So the scene where Scott's just going to let them take him away and kill him because... I mean, the trigger warning for suicidality. This book starts with Scott Free attempting to kill himself, right? And it doesn't get addressed. Like, they just, they fix him up at first, and then they just go on with their life. And you're like, what the hell? And then there comes a point where, because of this war they're in, like, Scott's going to get killed in the war, and he doesn't do a lot to stop it. And he kind of keeps telling Bardo, like, hey, like, if you don't want me to go, like just let me know Uh, like super unhealthy from Scott and Barda is like, 
no, like I can't be that for you. Like you got to, I need you to want to be here too, which is a very real emotion. But then like when he doesn't, she then does step in and she's like, all right, yeah, no, like I, this is not going to work for me. Or there's the time when they're on the swings and Scott wants to give up again. And Barda finally lets him have it for what happens in the first issue of like, have you even thought about what all this is doing to me? Like, I know this is all hard for you. I know there's a lot going on for you, but like, I have the same hand dealt to me as you, man. And I don't have me and you have me. And it just was like this cathartic real moment from Barda that I think a lot of the time in this book, we talk about Scott free and how amazing he is, but Tom King's big Barda is one of my favorite characters in any fiction ever. And their dynamic is so powerful. And I just think it's cool to see how you can relate to both of them at different times in your life how there will be times that you're going to be called upon to be the Barda in people's lives. And there will be times that you need a Barda in your life. I, I think that, Amen. I think that one of the things I found most fascinating is that Scott and Barda, they feel like one of the most real couples I've ever read in a superhero comic. Like, especially when you strip all of like the larger than life, fantastical aspects away from them, just as two people kind of in love with each other and supporting each other. It feels so genuine and so earnest in a way that not to say that superhero romances aren't genuine or earnest, but this feels like it's an extra layer of like everyone knows people that are like this. Like it feels familiar and it feels real. And I think a lot of that is how much how much of the kind of real world context is put into that. Not only, you know, maybe King channeling, you know, people in his own life, but also in terms of like how Scott Free is an allegory for Jack Kirby. Big Barda was always an allegory for his wife, Rosalind. Even when Kirby created the character, you know, Kirby, who was going through this kind of period of uncertainty, Ros was his rock. She was the kind of strong woman behind him, telling him not to give up and to always kind of continue following his dreams, even when those dreams ended up kind of becoming his nightmares. And I think to pick up on that being the clear allegory for that character in a book where King is kind of celebrating the life of Kirby to make Barda such an integral character in not only Scott's journey, but also her own journey in that story as well. And making her, her journey such a focal point of the story is such a massive tribute to not only Jack himself, you know, it's that story of like, you know, behind it's a kind of common phrase of behind every great man is a incredibly strong, greater woman who kind of doesn't always get the appreciation she deserves. And I think that's true here where it's like, not only is this kind of a, a tribute and a very heartfelt celebration of Jack, but it's also a celebration of Roz, a woman who didn't work in comics, but her impact on the industry through supporting and encouraging and sometimes pushing Jack into directions he wasn't sure if he could go in is unquestionable. And I, I think that how kind of how those kind of relationships are factored into this book is, is really interesting to me, not just between Scott and Barda, but also through the three father figure characters that King introduces and uses, uh, mainly high father, dark side and Oberon. Um, I think that high father is obviously killed quite early on in the book. He is the kind of biological father 
And I think that loss really kind of sends Scott spiraling. We're the only kind of identifiable father figure he has is Darkseid, a man who is kind of the the ultimate embodiment of evil and fascism and everything wrong with the world and kind of this living embodiment of Scott's fears and traumas and everything he's running from. And, you know, the the big kind of climax of the book where he's forced to go back and confront them with Darkseid's grandson and with Scott's own child is kind of, in order to kind of save the next generation of that lineage, he's forced to go and confront the kind of demons of his own parentage. I think that's fascinating. And I love the portrayal of Darkseid in this book, uh, but that's a kind of conversation for another day. One of my favorite parts of this book and what really kind of cemented it for me as one of my favorite comics of all time is Oberon. And it it sounds it sounds kind of wild because at first glance he's not a massively significant character in this story. Um for kind of historical context, when Mr. Miracle comes to Earth um and becomes a uh, escape artist, Oberon is kind of uh his manager, his agent, and his kind of human father figure on Earth. Uh, not like Funky Flashman, another character hmm. who is definitely not meant to be Stanley. Not he's definitely all. not Stanley not, at all. He is never no. once. Um, we are, Listen, for wait, legal purposes, know? he he has never once looked exactly like Stanley and so, talked exactly like Stanley. So, do we know the sto- Stanley? Do we know the story about Stanley's hair transplant? I uh, can I tell it? Can I tell it? Are you are you going where I think you're going with this? I I'm familiar with the story of his hair transplant. And so, the... readers, listeners, fellow podcasters. If you Google a photo of Stanley in 1960 and Stanley in 1970, there is a striking difference in the amount of hair on that man's head. He goes from having not a whole lot to having plenty. Um, And Kirby, especially once their relationship became quite strained and tenuous, was very keen to point out that Stan's hair may not have been authentic, that he may be wearing a wig or it may be a transplant. And like to poke fun at Stan's boldness, uh, Funky Flashman being the kind of shady guy who tries to become Scott's agent, mostly just to steal money from him. When Kirby went to DC and did Mr. Miracle, it was very much an allegory for, for Lee. And the first time we ever meet um, Funky Flashman uh, in Mr. Miracle issue one, he is putting on a toupee. It's outstanding. Because, because outstanding. Jack Kirby among many other things, is a salty bitch, and we love that. One of my favorite stories is Jack Kirby talking about the first day that Stan Lee came to the office, that his friend Stan Lee, who was just a normal like Jewish businessman writer that he knew, he'd worked with his whole life. He's like, yeah, he was kind of a dick, but like, whatever. He's like, and then this caricature of like seventies cool baby came through the door just unannounced one day, full head of hair shades bit. Like he looked like funky flashman in this comic. Yeah. He just went from like this normal little dude to like funky flashman walked through the door. Like, and there was no addressing it. It was just like, my name's Stan Lee now. And this is who I am, baby Excelsior. He's like, he started standing on tables and he's like, it was crazy. He's so like, I, so I wanted to talk about Oberon, um, but I, I will just kind of divert slightly and talk about Funky in this series, because while the character of Funky Flashman was very much a tongue-in-cheek kind of jab at Stanley at a time when Kirby and Lee weren't particularly on great terms, 
the way in which Funky's handled in this book is both very in keeping with Kirby's original portrayal and also really kind of sweet. The moment I think is the most on brand is we, we talked about the issue where Scott and Bard are kind of walking through LA and having that final day together as a couple. And then it's suddenly interrupted by Funky just being annoying. Um, that's very much on brand with the kind of ways Kirby would write the character. But one of one of my favorite parts of this book is the relationship Funky has with Scott and Barda's son, who is conveniently named after Jack Kirby. So much so that when we get to the end of the book and they have their daughter, she is named after Kirby's wife, Rosalind. Very lovely, very poetic. Um, but there's a, there's a bit towards the end of this series that I just, every time I read it, just gives me goosebumps, which is where Scott and Barda come back from the big battle with Darkseid. And Funky's been babysitting um, the baby. And let me see if I can find the exact point. Long story short, they have been, they're playing with toys, they're playing with action figures, and they've been coming up with stories together. And Funky explains to Scott the story they came up with, which is about a, let's see if I can get the words here. I've got it's the panels. It's the tale of a star-eating god and his helper, which is a direct reference to Galactus and the Silver Surfer, which was basically the book that, that was the event in which kind of caused Kirby to eventually leave Marvel altogether. And there's, and this shows to me just like how much Tom King has done his research in that when Scott is basically like, now Funky, you came up with all of this stuff. Jack's a baby, he can't even speak. Funky tells Scott that Jack and I have nothing to reproach ourselves about. That sentence is a massive deep cut um, to an interview Stan Lee did in 2014, where he talks about the last ever conversation him and Jack Kirby ever had. Now, this is coming from Stan Lee decades after Jack Kirby passed. And as much as I don't want to speak ill of the dead, Stan certainly had a way of over-exaggerating situations and uh, rewriting stories in a way that make himself look great. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. Um, But anyway, in 2014, Lee um, talked about kind of the last ever time that he saw Jack before they died. And there's actually a photo of this uh, instance that circulated around the same time that this book came out of Stan and Jack. They were both at a comic convention together and a young kid basically convinced them to take a photo together. Uh, It does the rounds on social media every so often. I, I think it's such a lovely photo. Uh, of these two kind of friends turned rivals slash almost like paternal father figures with the age difference between Stan and Jack. After they were both kind of finished working in mainstream comics, these kind of two old friends together for the last time. And um, Lee basically in this interview talks about, uh, he says, I'll tell you the last thing Jack Kirby said to me was very strange. I met him at a convention right before the end. He wasn't doing great. He walked over and said, Stan, I just want you to know you have nothing to reproach yourselves about. He knew people were saying things about me and he wanted to let me know that I hadn't done anything wrong in his eyes. So it's like the historical validity of that as a source, given that it's coming from Lee is maybe a little bit questionable. But according to Lee, that is kind of the last ever interaction him and Kirby had. And so when Funky having just like having come up with the story of Galactus and the Silver Surfer with a child named after Jack Kirby, he says, 
Jack and I have nothing to reproach ourselves about to Scott. Like knowing that that's a thing that Lee said, like as soon as I read that panel, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it's like, such it's such a small line. It's such a small Easter egg that like 99% of people that read that book have not picked up on that. And like, wouldn't be thought of any less for not picking up on it. But it's like for like the 1% of people who are like massive Jack Kirby nerds and do know that story. Like it shows that King has like done his research to a ridiculous degree. I love that. Um, do we have any thing that we want to say about the specifics of the writing or artwork before we move into listener questions? Because we have a lot of listener questions this time. Um, there's a lot to say about the artwork. I think the one thing I do want to shout out about the artwork, because I haven't had a chance to talk about Big Barda yet, and I love Barda so, so much. I love, 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 adore with my whole heart the way that Mitch Jarrods draws Big Barda. He does not, a lot of times when you see people draw Big Barda, they'll be like, oh, she's just, you know, a tall woman. You know, she's tall. She's got some muscles, but, you know, she's still got that little petite waist. She's still, you know, she's just, you're, you know, you're average girl. But no, this is like the way he draws her. He doesn't shy away from having her have like, muscles and mass and um the one thing especially is like her chest her chest is like huge and i'm like that's a huge like um insecurity for me i'm always like i'm very tall and i feel like i'm very like blocky at times and the way that mitch jared's draws big barda is a way that makes me feel like seen in a comic book for like my specific body type and it makes me very very happy because that never ever ever happens exactly you can be a big barda and also be super hot. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I also love that Scott is a bottom. That's all I'm going to say. That is canonical now. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Scott, Every single time I, I was like, "Oh, Scott, you're a bottom." Okay. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what that like, says about ex- Oh, go ahead. I don't know I don't know what that says about Jack Kirby. I'd rather not unpack that <laughs> right now. I don't, don't want to think of him that way. Like big ladies. I do. I want to throw out there the uh, when he's being a bottom scene. I had never noticed until my friend Rachel pointed out that like he's definitely on the crucifix there, right? Like he's a hundred. And I just for anyone that might have missed that, like I did on my first read when I was just like, oh man, they tying each other up for sex. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) I didn't think like, oh, this is very Christological, and I feel like I would be doing whatever one listener out there is also really into the fact that I got a degree in the Bible, I'd be doing them a disservice if I didn't talk about Scott Free as a Christological character, which is very interesting coming from Jack Kirby, who is not a Christian person, right? And mm-hmm. I think it is interesting. And Tom King, who is not Christian, both recognizing the storytelling significance within the Western world of framing a son of God who is cast out of heaven and then has to walk among man. Like, I think that is a very interesting storytelling beat. But that's literally the story of of Kirby's Mr. Miracle when you think about it anyway. Yeah. So it's the the son of high father being sent to apocalypse and then having to escape from that and walk amongst men on earth. Like it, it's a very kind of that's kind of coded into the DNA of the character to begin with, despite the fact that it's written and created by someone who isn't Christian. And so I just 
I find that interesting and significant, right? Mm-hmm. As someone who does come from that background. But yeah, you that, I like that because the imagery comes up later with the um the captive gods on Apocalypse. That's how all of them were were hanging up outside of um Darkseid's crib. Mm-hmm. I just I just thought that was fun that that's the way it's like this is how all these gods are being being kept. They're just crucified. You know what one of my favorite understated scenes were? I love the uh that all the new gods, both of Apocalypse and New Genesis, they're all one big family. And mm-hmm. so, like, when they have to call to be like, hey, we're battling to the death. Are you coming? Like, oh, no, I'm babysitting today. Can my husband do it? <laughs> like, I'm with the baby. It just made me laugh. Or when they're peeing, and I can't remember his name, but the guy with the little funky hat's like, you know, I slept with Leonardo da Vinci once. And Scott's like, very nice. And then when they do it again, he's like, I lied about that. I didn't really sleep with him. He told me no. He's like, why'd you lie? He's like, well, when you're peeing with the son of God, you have to say something. And I just, it fell. Or when the Furies showed up for Jack's or, birth. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, hey, we're going to kill you, by the way. But like, we're not going to miss the birth of our nephew. Are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, there is a lot of humor in this book. Mm-hmm. Um. I want to talk a little bit about the the blurring effect that Mitch Garrett mm-hmm. uses to make Scott question his reality. And I think it's most impactful to me when the blurring affects Scott's face and his perception of self. Right? Because one of the through lines of this book is seeing and understanding the face of God. There are many people who claim to be God and say, Scott, you have now seen the face of God when he interacts with High Father, when he interacts with Orion, when he interacts with Darkseid, he's informed you are interacting with God. You have now seen the face of God, which is a very weighted term in Judaism. Like Moses was significant because he was the first person to see the face of God. Like God had spoken to other people, but God had never revealed himself to anyone. He had never named himself to anyone. And Moses, the deliverer of God's chosen people, was the one that God revealed his face and name to. And so Scott, as the deliverer of people in this book, is the person who gets to see God's face. And I think by the end of this book, you come to learn that God's face is Scott's face. Both like within the story, him becoming High Father, but then like you as a person, you as an actualized human being, when that blurring fact goes away, when you stand yourself firmly in your life, you are the face of God. Mm. And like you can apply whatever theology you want to that or no theology at all, but like you are immensely significant just as you are. And if you can understand and love yourself and firmly root yourself, you your life will be better. And I think that's yeah. one of the underlying roots of this book. And I remember, I really, I think it's worth going back and listening to that Mr. Miracle conversation because my friend Rachel had so many fun things to say about it. But she talked about how that blurring effect really spoke to her experience with mental health. Like that is exactly what it feels like through artwork. Like I'd never seen that before, but like feeling blurry and like not quite in my day-to-day life for no real reason at all. And all of a sudden is what spoke to her about her bouts with anxiety and depression. And I think it's cool that Mitch and Tom were able to quantify that in artwork. 
that feeling of being unmoored. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. Oh yeah. It's pretty good. See, Lexi, all this all this discussion about it. Have your feelings or thoughts or interest in the book changed at all? Or is it just still kind of about where it was at the beginning? No, I feel like I definitely have a greater grasp of what I was trying to get at, for sure. And I mean, even just like while everybody else is talking and I can kind of sit with my own thoughts based on what you have said, like I am starting to form my own opinions about it. What are they? What? Tell us. Tell us. I have to pick up my groceries, damn it. <laughs> I want more Lexi thoughts. I know. I know. Maybe I'll just start my own podcast. Screw you guys. I'll have my own internal Lexi thoughts. Um, no, but um, just even what we said earlier about how you have a sense of normalcy while quote unquote battling your enemies and talking about your condo. Like, I just feel like. Um, 2022 was a year that I realized that I have extreme anxiety about a lot of things. And Dallas would have never thought that. Look at his face. You? Me? I will literally cry if a pickle touches my sandwich. But uh, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Anyway, I have a lot of anxiety. But I have had to learn from – I mean this with love. But growing up in a family that doesn't believe in anxiety, I had to learn how to – pretend that everything was fine while my dad would scream at me to eat my cheeseburger that had a tomato touch it and I had to pick it off and then I cry because it had tomato sauce on it but anyway I I felt very seen like when you guys were saying like oh you have to keep things normal in your own life while there's crazy things going on and I, I feel like that for me is pretty important and also like battling with the feelings that come with those events um so I feel like, yeah, I definitely have a greater understanding of the book. And that's why I honestly love this podcast because I'll read things and I don't have very many complex thoughts. And so I come and bring those things to my complex friends and say, give me thoughts. So thank you. <laughs> Do you want to know, Lex, what one of my favorite scenes in this book is when Scott gets the gift of that mirror that shows him how he really is from Granny Goodness. And it's meant to be this like mean thing that she does. To like, mm-hmm. I let her as the personification of his trauma. Like, I still own you, even though I'm gone and dead. You've killed your trauma. Like, no, you haven't. It's still skin deep. And he stands there and he's looking at himself, and you can just see the hurt and the fear on his face. And then when Barda walks into the frame and she stands next to him and just hugs him while he cries, like, mm-hmm. I have never seen a better representation of what the right partner can be for you in your life. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love that page. I think that is one of the best pages in comic books ever. No words. It, it uses the nine panel grid structure of this book so well. I just, I love it. Also, here's my crackpot. We'll talk about this more in the questions, but this book opening with a full page splash, double page splash, Scott slits his wrist, and then the very strict comic book nine panel grid for the whole thing until Metron is like, you're not in a real world. And then you get to see a not nine panel grid again. And then Scott's like, I don't care. I'm happy in this pretend world and closes the door and is right back to the nine panel grids. 
I think that is a really brilliant visual way of telling us that what I think is the meaning of the end of this book is the like, this is a little off to the side, not continuity comic book. That's its own world that this Scott and Barta, they just get to live over in this reality and they never have to come back over to the main continuity. They don't have to come back to the real world that so many fans want them to be like, they just, and I feel like that's a great message about Tom King's books in general. Like they're their own little islands of excellent. And I'm sorry, they're not going to get brought back over into the main stuff and that's okay. Just as, just as an addition to that, I was flicking through the book as you were saying that. And I realized that some of the only other pages to not kind of be constricted to the nine panel grids are the flashbacks to young Scott as a child where they're talking about what each of the four world means. Uh, where he says, uh, the first world is the old world, the world of my parents. The second world is the new world. The third world is our world as it is now. And the fourth world, my child, is the world I see when I close my eyes. That bookends the comic. Uh, that's the first thing you see uh, in the first issue. And it's one of the final things you see in the culmination of the 12th issue. That's out of the nine panel grid and out of the context of the story. Because while it's... Uh, it's a flashback to a young Scott Free. All of that dialogue is taken directly from Jack Kirby, uh, where he talked about the creative process behind what the fourth world is uh, in terms of him and how it's like the first world is the world of his parents, the world of Europe that they fled to. The second world is kind of um, the new world, the world that he was grown up in, his childhood, his, his memories. The third world is the world he existed in while he was writing this comic and the fourth world being his kind of imagination and what he sees in his dreams. Um, so for that to be outside of the kind of the structure and the kind of like the rigid bars of the narrative, I think is also quite telling and really cool. I just wanted to, to throw that in there. Yeah. I love that a lot. Should we do some listener questions? Yes, absolutely. All right. So, first question from Zach. Dear Collective, which other new gods would you want to see given a solo series and why? Barda. Barda. Just Barda. <laughs> Just Barda. Anyone else will not accept. I need to... I want to read that Female Furies book, even though I heard it wasn't that great. Wait, I want to throw... I There was a joke earlier that I forgot to say, and I just remembered it. When you said... <laughs> That they were taking Grandpa uh, Darkseid just like to steal babies. Yeah. He's like, listen, he's his evil Pip-Pap in a little mini skirt and go-go boots. That's my favorite thing about Darkseid. If you look at him, he is in a mini skirt and go-go boots. I love him. He's so important to me. Have you ever seen the meme of the cat with its face in a piece of bread? Yes. That's what Darkseid looks like. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at him and I was like, this is real? This is how he, this is how he looks? Oh. Wow, okay, you're not that scary. <laughs> I, you know, I'll little, take Listen, that. he's got his grand pussy out. <laughs> oh, my. That was like a, hit the chat like a flashbang. I saw all three of you <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> at that word. I I'll hope take I ruined someone else's I feel like day. I need a spray bottle. <laughs> spray you with it. Get out of here. I'll, I'll take a glorious Godfrey miniseries and then a new question, please. Ooh. That would be good. Um I it already happened, but I want to read Walt Simonson's Orion series. I love Walt Simonson, and I think that Orion series is probably pretty cool. 
I know Orion is like a bastard in this, but he's an interesting bastard elsewhere. He sure is a bastard with a silly hat. But it's it's such a good Kirby hat. Like yeah, every silly hats. It's just listen, whatever book we get, it needs to have the best artist in the world on it. I love the fourth world design so much, and I love the fourth world colors. Could you imagine putting these guys into a movie and being like, "What if they were all really gray?" <laughs> couldn't couldn't be me. Thank goodness that never happened. Thank goodness. Um, and do you want to read the next question from Brandon Avila? Give me just one second. That's not the notes app. No, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. I promise. I promise. I promise. Um, that really makes it worse. It really does make it worse. It like clears your this, brain. This question is from Brandon Avila. Thank you very much. Um, first ever question I got to send to the podcast. Yay. Awesome. I'm very excited for the Mr. Miracle episode. This comic brought me back to comics after not reading them for a while. Dallas, you wrote this. How dare you send us your own question? Um, but yeah, my dad brought, bought it. My dad bought it and he didn't even really care for it after. But to me, it's one of the greatest books ever. I'm not in the minority when I say Scott and Barda's relationship is one of the best dynamics in comics and a p- big part of what makes the book so great. So my question is, what are each of your guys' top five comic couples and why? All right, so one of my favorite comic couples is me and my wife. Um, yep. She's not into comics, That's- but I am. So we count as a comics couple. <laughs> Number one favorite. Um, mine is Brad and Lisa Gullickson. Oh, also, yes. yeah, yep. Brad and Lisa Gullickson, big fave. Me and Carson, now that he accepted to come onto the podcast to ask all, I actually gave him Dallas's cell phone number because I was sick of him asking me questions about um, <laughs> Kang the Conqueror. I said, I don't want to talk about it anymore. We just fight. And he goes, fine. I go, don't ask questions you don't want to hear the answers to. He goes, fine. My that bad. Sorry, My Dallas. Answer. My answer is me, Dallas, and Dallas's wife. There you go. <laughs> I'll let her know. Dallas did have a little twinkle in his eye during during the your part earlier. Did you know. like that? I just got down with my hands under my yeah, chin and just like listened Twitter, to him like, talk. I was you know, like, like, kick your feet. It was. <laughs> I was like, was like, I was they're, like, they're so smart. Look at them. <laughs> When Owen's talking, I'm just going through the comic so I can view it like a YouTube video in my mind. I'm like scrolling down each each panel. I'm like, oh, beautiful. This is a wonderfully edited video. <laughs> just <laughs> mentally adding else. just mentally adding some lo-fi hip hop into the background. Yes, exactly. My, nice. Mentally, that's where I was at. Alexis can do that part. Alexis will be the lo-fi beats to study to. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, one of my other favorite couples is Matt Draper and comic books. That is also a comic. Matt Draper and like Spawn. That's um. That's one of those couples where you're like, that's a thing. I good love for them. Ian Question and mark. CC so good. And and CC the ferret is good. Okay. Um. All right, Brandon. I'm sorry. I will give you one real answer. <laughs> I think Superman and Lois are fantastic. I love them. What about <sighs> Superman and Wonder Woman? Shut up. Gross. No longer friend of the pod. <laughs> I don't hate it. I do. I don't hate I it. I like Wonder Woman and that muscular redhead from that run that we read during Bisexual Week. I didn't mention that it was bisexual at all. Alexis <laughs> likes the panel that Twitter hates. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll go with, I'll go with uh, Ultimate Peter Parker and Kitty Pride. Let's go! You understand, Owen. You understand. And I'll, I'll also go with uh, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle. 
there we go. There's there's the gay. We finally did it. We thought we'd go the whole episode without a single homosexual. We made it finally. Lesbians. <laughs> Nobody listens when I talk. Hey, listen. <laughs> this is America. We don't acknowledge lesbians. We just sweep them under the rug and let them this keep is, existing. This is modern media. The word lesbian does not exist here. But speaking Lesbian. of some lesbians, um, <laughs> since Dallas went so vanilla, I'm going to do something really kinky. I'm going to do um, Allie and Lisa from Sunstone. Yes. Oh, Thank yo. You. Marco and Alana from Saga. They clear everybody. I'm surprised that wasn't See, your first answer. Mm-hmm. This this comic was so good, Dallas forgot that Saga existed for a second. <laughs> Just Word. a second, though. Word. And then it was right back on my mind, baby. Love it. Um. All right. I think Parker and uh, a glass of whiskey, also one of my favorite. Yeah. In his big, meaty hands. <laughs> All right. This one is from Cole from the YouTube channel Critical Rants. Hi, Comics Collective. Oh, that's what he's from. No, continue. Continue. Go. go. Hi, Cole. Love you. Straight to jail. <laughs> Hi, Comics Collective crew and Owen. I hope you're all having a wonderful day. My question for you today is how do you interpret or view the ending of Mr. Miracle? While a lot is left ambiguous, my personal takeaway was that regardless of where he is or what is real, Scott has found a place and an existence that he doesn't want to escape from. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the ending, and I hope you have a fun time recording the podcast. So I kind of touched on mine. I think it's a meta commentary on this being an out-of-continuity comic book mm-hmm. where he's living. That was a lot I... of words. Yeah, I think it has a great use there. I think it also is a bit of commentary between our lives and our use of fiction as escapism in general. Um, and I feel like it's it's kind of a flipped metaphor because you have the very strict nine panels nine panel comic grid, and that's kind of like Scott's quote unquote real life. That's where he's living a happy life with his family. That's where things matter. That's where he actually has to deal with his own trauma, his the consequences of all the actions around him, where death actually matters. And the weight of the world is pressing down on him. That feels like the real world. And then that moment at the end where um, Metron's like, hey, here's this real wonderful big fantasy world where you can go back where all the heroes, you know, are just doing their thing. This is where you escaped from at the beginning. This is this is here. If you need to get away, it exists. And then Scott says, no, I'm going to stay here. And I think it's a a great commentary of like we can use that to escape if we want to but also because you know life is so overwhelming that's what we use comics to get away from so often is just the overwhelming burden of life but i think that scott's decision to stay at the end of this comic was a great um commentary on like you don't have to yes there's a lot going on but there's a lot here that matters yeah just to piggyback off that i want to say that um the, the comic definitely does a lot to make you think that the ending's not real. Not just because mm-hmm. of like how the book opens, you can interpret that as everything after that is not actually happening. There's the fact that they literally recreate the ending of Dallas, not friend of the podcast Dallas. Um, <laughs> friend of my podcast now, this is, I've replaced you. It's just commandeered. Um, this was a silent mutiny. Yes, this was. Um, but it's also the fact that like in the final issue, you have all the ghosts of the de- various new gods basically trying to tell Scott that things aren't real or that this is all you can't stay in this kind of world except from Oberon who we find out throughout the stories real surname is Kurtzberg is a kind of spiritual father figure Kurtzberg being the real life surname of Jack Kirby 
Oberon's the character that tells Scott basically like it doesn't matter whether or not this is real as long as it feels real. You know, paralleling that idea of like it, this being Kirby's this world that he created is Kirby's escapism, and this is his oasis from all of the personal problems. It doesn't matter or not whether or not this is real or whether it's canon. It, all that matters is kind of how it feels to you. Do you feel happy? Do you feel safe? Do you feel at home? Then what else matters? What's more real than those feelings? I really liked that moment as a parallel to the conversation on the beach about the I think and therefore I am philosophy. Mm -hmm. That this is sort of Scott's moment of like, I can either believe this is real or I can doubt everything and I'm choosing to believe. And so you see that full circle moment. Exactly. What do you think of the end, Lex? I feel like in my little peanut brain, I like it because I think that he finally found his happiness. He has his kids. He has his big Barda. And he just wants to stay right there and have a happy little life with them. And that's how I'm going to think about it. And I love it so much. I think it's very fun. It's a good ending. And I have to leave. So love y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Love you, bye. It's okay. Love you, bye, Lexi. <laughs> Answer the rest of the questions. See you all next week. I don't know what we're reading. Guess I'll find out with everybody else. Toodaloo. <laughs> all right that was the best exit ever okay and do you want to read read the next one yep bingo so the next comes from eric mr miracle question was thaddeus brown the first mr miracle or is scott definitively the first in continuity i feel like i've seen it both ways but i can't place my finger on which one is more solid um yeah thanks eric eric um i'm gonna say whichever one feels more solid to you just pick one because i'm sure the answer has been both at some times but in this one we very specifically get thaddeus brown set up early on don't we like he's in the first issue yeah um i don't care (laughs) Uh. (laughs) comics are what you want listen comics and continuity are what you want them to be it's as simple as that any writer will tell you as much anyone who tells you otherwise is an idiot just you know if you want thaddeus brown to be a part of it make him part of it and I'm, I swear to God, someone, the original Mr. Miracle is referenced at the very beginning of this first it is, issue. It is. It talks okay. about how Scott inherited the mantle from someone. I just, mm-hmm. I cannot be bothered to care about continuity. You could hold Wait, a gun is, to my head and I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't care. Is Thaddeus Brown? Yeah. yeah that's from, okay. from my memory, um, it's been a long time since I've read the original Kirby comics. But in that, I'm pretty sure the first issue of that is all about Scott Free coming to Earth. Um, I feel like Thaddeus is killed. And then Scott basically just like steals his costume and steals his identity and becomes Mr. Miracle. That's it's that's like one of the wildest things to me because he just comes to Earth and there's this dude who just looks like peak New Genesis. He's just like, I'm just chilling. <laughs> the most New Genesis my- looking person. <laughs> exactly. Could you imagine if you found Dead Man first? He's like, "Hey, Boston Brand, this is pretty neat, but it's the, your threads aren't my style." There's not enough circles. Not enough circles. Not enough lines. The, the MCU should love Kirby. I don't know why they don't. The only thing that is real. They don't is... like things that look nice. That's why. They don't also don't like stories. They also don't like stories that are nice either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't like treating creatives nice. The only thing that's, that's real, sure. 
Continuity isn't real. The only thing that is real is Tom King and Mitch Garrett's being on the first page of issue 12 of this series down in the bottom middle panel. Yeah. That's the only thing that's real. There's a few uh, creators scattered up across that page, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I can't verify whether or not that's real. Like I said, there, there's only one thing that is real, and that's uh, that's those two. And Nick Darrington's cover art. I remember the first time I read this, I was like, ugh, why aren't Mitch Garrett's perfect covers the real covers? And now I have a grown-up brain that goes, both is good. Nick Darrington is <laughs> oh, yeah, a genius. Good. You get two of the best artists in comics together on this book that way. Oh, I love the variant cover to number five, though, of Mitch... From Mitch of Barda and Scott looking at each other on lovey-dovey. I love it. Um, okay. Eric Haggard says... Oh, no, sorry. I just read that we one. Are... <laughs> Eric, stop. Stop trying to get in here for a second, <laughs> Eric. Okay? You you know which one you gotta do. You Listen know. here. Oh my gosh. Leave Eric be. Just because he sent two questions. Eric! I'm going to break my foot off in your ass, Eric. All right. Hello, everyone. We have a great audience here. I could not stop laughing when Darkseid partook in the veggie platter. What other diabolical symbols of evil would you like to eat vegetables with? Holy shit. Ha, 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 ha. Wario Scapelli. I want to see Apocalypse from the X-Men have a Baja Blast. I feel like that would really sort him out. Like just him on Krakoa just like chugging a Baja Blast would really like sort out a lot of his issues. I mean, as far as diabolical symbols of evil, I would love evidence that Marjorie Taylor Greene has ever eaten a vegetable. Um, I don't want to do it with her, but uh, I do. I want to see... Her eat a vegetable because I think one stick of celery and she would burst into flames. She's a red meat only kind of lady, and I'm not just talking about red faced Republicans. I, okay. I imagine I imagine that Granny Goodness would be like pretty good on the barbecue. Like I feel like she knows how to make some good glizzies. Listen, listen. Oh, yeah, she cooked Scott and Barda for years, so exactly. I do think she's pretty good at barbecuing. <laughs> right, other sauce definitely is. Never mind. Um, right, I want to wait, 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 wait. I, what? I change the question here. <laughs> Wario, you tried your best, but here's the real question. Was Darkseid eating ranch or blue cheese? Which is more diabolical? Blue cheese. Blue cheese is more diabolical? That is yeah, the most Midwestern answer. literally fucking mold. That's the most Midwestern answer you've ever had. All right. Owen, from across the pond, blue cheese or ranch, which is more diabolical? It's literally rotting away. I don't know what you're talking I, about. Look, as a, as a proud Brit, I pr- take proud out of that. As a Brit, <laughs> we okay. don't we're not really... proud to be Americans. Yeah, but I'm not. Pr- I'm not proud that America is. You know, we went there and did that. Listen, it is your fault. List of yeah, you I'm made proud. us this way, and now you eat ranch and that cheese that's like a s- squirts. It's just oh, I don't. All of it's bad. The cheese that squirts. <laughs> Cheese is solid. What's happening? It's a block. <laughs> Don't make me go over to my fridge and. You need a good, a honest cheese. You need a good pub cheese. A good, honest pub cheese. I watched Banshees of Inishiran and I went, gosh, there's another people that Owen's people messed over and I moved on. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. 
I thought the I'm kinship not, there. I was like, not yeah. proud of it. Oh, I was gonna. I want to watch. Um, I want to sit across the table as Doomsday tries to eat chips and guac, and just keeps breaking every single chip until he eventually Aww. becomes more and more hopeless. Maybe that's why he was so angry when he punched. Probably. Can you imagine trying to eat a cheeseburger with rock fingers? I'd be. I'd probably kill Superman too. <laughs> All right. Sam writes. Hey, Comics Collective, thanks for putting this book on your schedule. It gave me the push I needed to finally read it myself, and I loved it. I have two questions. A big part of this book was exploring Scott's drama and how it has affected him. As far as I know, that wasn't previously done in many other Mr. Miracle stories. What other characters do you think could benefit from a deeper dive into how trauma has affected them? Okay, I know that this email is actually from Tom King, just asking for future ideas for comics. (laughs) Rorschach. Adam Strange. Batman. Um, Supergirl. Yeah, Superman not so much. The uh, the Danger a... Street kids. Those dingbats. This question uh, is just kind of like, what Tom King books do you want to read? I was going to say, my, my actual answer for this is actually going to get that, because before it was John Kent. Because the dumbest thing about John Kent was like, this is a character that could be interesting, but we just decide to ignore the interesting thing that happened for the sake of just like, he's old now. So I like that the new Superman book is going to actually focus on, Hey, you should probably talk. You should probably confront the man who tortured you throughout your child, your entire childhood. You should probably figure that shit out. Makes sense to me. Give give me a Nightwing book. That's a sequel to Frank Miller's all-star Batman and Robin. No, no, no. Actually, no, that's the character it's... I want to explore the trauma from. I want to explore my trauma with DC Comics. I want that comic made. <laughs> Every time I've had to read Frank, <laughs> look at Frank Miller's fucking Black Canary and the effect that had on my nervous system. I All shake right. it now. Listen, I've got a different kind of answer. One character that I don't want to see any more trauma from is Spider-Man. I hate every time Spider-Man is sitting up on like a little gargoyle and he's like, the spiders, they crawl over me. I'm like, you're not Batman. <laughs> Why are we writing him this way? He's like, they can't see my tears under this mask in the rain. And I was like, you are supposed to be silly. Cool it. I don't I like it. Fucking hilarious. <laughs> I didn't know they still made Spider-Man comics. Wow. They don't. Okay, let me know when they do again. Okay, I like we'll do. the current one. I'll It'll be fun. For it. DC's like, you know, we just spent some time traumatizing this Black Alice girl. Poor thing. We should probably actually give her something to do. But they're, then they'll probably be like, nah. Why would we? That that makes no sense. There's there's potential here. No, fuck that. <laughs> Goodbye. There's Batman stories yet to be told, baby. Exactly. All right. Question two. Scott and Barda are ghouls. Aside from them, who are some of your other favorite married couples in comics? Married? They have to um, be married. Aquaman and Mara. Uh, Walt and Louise Simonson. That is the best answer. <sighs> that's the best answer. That's, that's uh, just I can't compete with Owen on the, co- on the podcast today. I'm just... J- Jack and Rosalind Kirby. Um, naming real people and I love that this conversation became about Jack Kirby. That's what I was hoping for when I invited you on Owen. I know this is probably an after the podcast quite thing to say, but the listeners can hear it as well. 
that is what I love about comic books. I love the real people that make these pieces of art that are bearing their soul to the world saying, this is what it is to be me. And I love learning their stories. So when I read these books, I can understand a little bit more of them and I can feel like there's someone else in the real world who feels the way I do. You can read this and say, man, Scott free is just like me. But if you understand the context, you can say, wow, Jack Kirby, one of the best men to ever live. Tom King, one of the best writers currently working is just like me. Yeah. And that is way more comforting to me than what these fictional characters are going through. Like people but it get doesn't mad have, about, but it about doesn't have to people be either or. Yeah. I mean, it can be both. And I think it's most magical when it is both. I just, I think sometimes with comic book discourse, there are people that get angry about like a self insert character. And I was like, that's what art is. They're all self insert characters. So no one complained when fantastic four issue one came out that Ben Grimm was a self insert character. Mm-hmm. Like every writer does that. If you, if you're not, kind of infusing a little piece of yourself into the stories you tell. What are you doing? Well, that that's the soul of the character, right? That's when it goes from caricature to character. As yeah. When you and obviously like it's, it's more a question. It's more a question of execute execution. Some books don't handle that kind of self insert as well as others. But I think at the heart of it, every great story is a meta commentary and about something more personal and, and real and human than just superheroes fighting bad guys. I just think this is like, one of the most like deep and one of the most, cause it's not only like it's obviously it's a commentary on Kirby, but it's also in a lot of ways, Scott King, Scott free is Tom King talking about his own experiences with trauma and PTSD and anxiety and, and kind of the people that helped him out of that. Have you two seen the movie, the whale with Brendan Fraser? Not yet. No. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a line in that movie where they talk about Moby Dick and they said the saddest part of the books were the boring chapters about the whales because I could tell that the author was just trying to save us from their sad, sad story. And that made me saddest of all. And that is a little bit how I feel with superhero comics. I think sometimes we get really excited about the chapters about the whales, you know, when they're out fighting and punching. And it's like, sometimes I think those are just there so that these books will sell because the other parts, the real parts about people's lives and about their emotions are harder to market, you know, exactly. but I think especially those are the you, magic parts. Especially when you think of that through the context of like we talked about earlier, where like Mr. Miracle in the fourth world was Kirby's big, like last ditch attempt to break free of that kind of shadow he felt he was in. And yet, because maybe it's not like tr- it wasn't traditional superhero comics, because it was a bit more abstract and esoteric and high concept and a bit kind of wordy and, and bombastic. It, it was cut short. It was canceled because it wasn't kind of, it wasn't straightforward and, and superhero enough. Yeah. So there's something to chew on dear listeners, <laughs> Sam. I know that's not what you asked, but there you go. PS dark side is says Sam. Thanks. So are we. Our final question comes from Jose Pereira. Pareda, I'm sorry if I said your last name wrong. Um, hey, Comics Collective and Owen, huge fans of y'all. Mr. Miracle is my favorite comic of all time. I consider it one of the greatest works of any medium. It hit me right at the right time in my life. Do you think this comic is adaptable at all for a movie or show? Also, Owen, do you think CM Punk will return? Uh, I've got the same answer for both, uh, which is no, I hope not. 
<laughs> it, it's funny because like I maybe it's just because like, I'm so protective of this story and because it's such a loving tribute to uh, an individual person. Like I think really, obviously there was the stories a few years ago about King and Ava DuVernay working on a new gods movie that was going to like feature Mr. Miracle and Big Barda quite prominently. Like I'm cool with that. But if someone was to say, I'm going to adapt Tom King and Mitch Jared's 2017 Mr. Miracle Maxi series, I think I would freak out and have a panic attack of my own just because I think they're like, you know, we talked about with Lexi kind of coming into this and reading it just as a story without necessarily all of the context and kind of the deep lore behind it. I don't think you, I don't think you appreciate it's It's a book that you get the most out of if you know everything if that makes sense. Not just about Mr. Miracle, but about Kirby and about King. It's, mm-hmm. it's a book built on kind of repeat reading and contextual understanding and meta narrative and all that stuff that I think, it would be very difficult for a kind of general audience to really grasp. And I think they'd lose so much of what makes the book special. Mm -hmm. Because that's the thing where it's like, you can adapt it to a point and, but there's so many things that come into question as with most adaptations, you always are going to have like studio interference. People were like, cause you can have an artistic vision, but you also are going to have with a movie like this, you'd have a studio breathing down your neck being like, yeah, that's artistic as fuck. No one's going to get it though. So we need you to simplify this. We need you to dumb this down. Yeah. And it's like just the, the filmography of it. There's a lot of things that you can do in a comics medium that you would have to really be imaginative imaginative to figure out how to do it on the big screen or a small I definitely, screen. I definitely think you could tell a Mr. Miracle movie that deals with trauma and PTSD and mental health and kind of the relationship with father figures like this book does really well, but I don't think you could like take this book and adapt it straightforward. Mostly, I also just think that like as this book exists as a tribute to Kirby, it is therefore best served in the media in which Kirby spent his entire life yeah. working in. Like, I don't, like, I feel like the best way to honor someone like Kirby isn't to make a movie. And obviously there's tons of movies based off Kirby's characters or to make a show. This is a guy that gave his entire life for comics. And therefore I think his memory and his legacy is best represented as a comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like one of those things where it's like, you can adapt something, but if it's a thing that's critiquing a specific form of media, then it's going to fall flat no matter how perfectly you nail it. Zack Snyder's Watchmen is the perfect example of you can get everything picture perfect, but if you miss the point, yeah, if that gets lost, then it's not going to happen. I don't want to get into like a discussion of Zack Snyder's Watchmen because that's not good for anyone, but (laughs) that is an issue that arises when you are adapting something that is so ingrained in commenting on its own form of media. Like Watchmen is a comic about the comic book industry and about comic book characters that the only way to adapt that is to completely change the metaphor and make it about comic book movies. Um, and I think the similar thing is, yeah, which I think that, and I think that like the, not to kind of like pick and choose between Watchmen's, but I think that's something that the HBO adaptation does quite well, where it kind of does evolve. Ooh. It does evolve the commentary for its new media uh, and for its kind of context. Um, and so, but with something like this, I think that it's so steeped in, the history and context of comics, the the story, while it could be adapted and you could like kind of take aspects of it and kind of rework it. The story as it is right now is in the best possible form that it could ever be in. 
I think the only thing I would add to both of you's excellent points is so much of the magic of this book is in its visual language and its visual language is built on juxtaposition that is only possible in comic books. The out of time nature of a comic book panel and a comic book page where everything is happening all at once allows for this story of feeling two very specific ways at the exact same time and having to reconcile that only really possible as it stands now through the pages of a comic book. And so there would have to be some really heavy lifting to figure out what the visual language of a Mr. Miracle adaptation would be that I can't think of anyone that I would be interested in seeing do it. Like I just, I just want this to be a comic book. Yeah. I also just think as a general, Tom King stories aren't the easiest to adapt. Like imagine if they just made Tom King's Rorschach the movie, how much that would weird people out. That'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Imagine starring, how... starring Frank Miller as himself in the movie. That'd be great. Gosh, I would watch it. You and I could watch it. No one else I... would. We would. Well, we would. And we'd like it probably. I love that Rorschach book. I think I'm the only person I know that loves that Rorschach book. Like everyone else is like, that was interesting. I was like, no, nah, I, I love that shit. That book ruled. Um, yeah, Owen, before we bounce, what do you have to plug? What do you have to, pe- to point the people to? Well, uh, firstly, thank you for inviting me on this podcast. This has been fun. I get to talk about one of my favorite ever books with some of my favorite ever people. So this was an absolute <gasps> delight. Um, I feel like I should plug the video essay slash documentary I did um, 18 months or so ago on Tom King's Mr. Miracle and how it exists as a love letter and a tribute to Jack Kirby. Um, go check that out. I think it's still one of my favorite mm. things I've ever made. It's really good. Uh, I also released a two-hour Batman video, which might not be as good, um, but it's something to put on in the background. So go watch that. Um, follow me on Twitter at OwenLikesComics and YouTube.com slash OwenLikesComics for all of your uh, videos and deep dives into the real-world history behind comics. Next time, uh, depending on when this goes up, the video will either be out or will be coming out. I'll be diving into the history of Green Lantern and looking at the infamous 1984 storyline Emerald Twilight and how it both destroyed Green Lantern and also made him kind of fun and interesting for the first time in a while. Hell yeah. Awesome. I've got to say, if I was to ever spend two whole hours on Batman, Owen would definitely be on one of your videos. It's it's a big ask, I know, for anyone. But I I want to throw it out there. I was a fan of Owen's YouTube channel before he and I became friends. One of the great joys of being in the comic book scene has been becoming his friend because I, re- I appreciate your talent so much, your view so much. So if you haven't checked out Owen's YouTube channel, please... Please do. If you like our show, you will love Owen's thoughts on all things comics. Uh, For sure. I remember one time I got you and Doug from For Every Kind of Geek mixed up before I knew either of you. And I was mortified. I was like, these two guys that I like, these two people that I like so much. I am so embarrassed that I just got them mixed up because they both have green icons. And I was like, and now I just dm them both like what's up dipshit how you doing and i like <laughs> yeah parasocial relationships are really wild mm-hmm. no it's, it's a pleasure it's a pleasure to be mixed up with someone as wonderful and as talented as doug from for every kind of geek go watch him as well he's the best 
He is mm -hmm. the best. All right. Should we go through our final stuff, Miss Anne? Absolutely. If you like the show and want to hear more from us through the week, please go follow our Twitter account at CMX Collective or our TikTok account at The Comics Collective. Or you can find each of us at Dallas underscore comics, at Ann Comics, and at Lexi Luke Comics. If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and give us a five-star review, and we will read it off on the show. I do want to say we got one on, I think it was Podbean, that made me mm -hmm. laugh out loud. But really? Yeah, it was a real good time. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't have it in front of me, but it was just five stars. Fuck Jeff Johns, period. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what we did that sparked that, but it happened. I feel like my um, internal monologue just like seeped out onto a podcast review. Wow. Spoilers for my Green Lancet video. Oh man. It it really <laughs> I might, made I might me laugh. Just, so. I might just take this segment of that pod of this podcast and just put that in the video. You do have my permission to do that. Um and then we oh. actually do have a review from Friend of the Pod, Matt Draper. Thanks, Matt. <gasps> he says, Comic books, yeah, okay. Three miscreants and the occasional guest, ne'er do well, dive deep on comic books old and new with the occasional scatological tangent. Scream, as Dallas mentions comic Twitter takes. Laugh, as Anne takes one step closer to the edge of madness. Delight, <laughs> as Lexi steals the show. It's the only comic book podcast that will make you say, comic books? Yeah, okay. I love that. Beautiful Thank you so words. much, Matt. Yeah. You're the best. Beautiful Thanks, words Matt. from a beautiful man. I, Absolutely. You know that feeling when you get red so hard? <laughs> <laughs> One step closer I'm, to madness. I'm glad my cry to help has been heard by someone. I like this wake-up call about how terminally online I am. I promise I'm seeking help. Please don't leave TikTok, though, Dallas. I do enjoy just, like, your my little corner of TikTok, which mm -hmm. is just you talking about Grant Morrison comics. Heck yeah. I do need to get back on that. I've been slacking on TikTok. It's just for a lot shame. to be like, let's put my face out there today. <laughs> it, it was like, I, I went looking for more Grant Morrison TikTok content because you stopped uploading. And all I found was people talking about Talia. And I'm like, this is not the side of Grant yeah. I want to hear about. Yeah, TikTok does not like stuff. Grant. So oh, please, I please just... kind of balance it out. Hi, hi. Okay. And finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for the show at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. And we will see you all next week for our continuation on our Hickman run. Fantastic for read. Evan Von Doom will be back here. Same time, same bat channel. Make sure you're here. It's the Complete Collection Volume 2, if you're reading along at home. Issues 579 through 588 of Fantastic Four and FF 1 through 5. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.